Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. I'm traveling across the country over the past six months. I came here to say it's become clear to me. This is not my time. So after much prayer and deliberation, I have decided to suspend my campaign for president effective today. Now I'm leaving this campaign, but let me promise you, I will never leave the fight for conservative values and I will never stop fighting to elect principled Republican leaders to every office in the land. So help me God. And with that, Mike Pence steps away from the presidential race, which we told you was going to be the case. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. Good to be with you guys. Find everything at TonyKatz.com. T-O-N-Y-K-A-T-Z. TonyKatz.com is where you go. Why? We took it from a very logical point of view, as we often do. And we said, if you're Mike Pence, you cannot get the Trump supporter. Sure, you might pick up a percentage point here or a percentage point there if you were the nominee over time. But we're talking about generalities. You cannot get the Trump supporter. Could not be done. I think that's a rational argument to make. Penn's team would have to make the argument that, hey, that's okay. There's many, many more people out there than Trump supporters, more so than there are Trump supporters, and we could just show that Biden's doing a bad job and we can win without that. That's um, that's a, that's a real, that's a real hope right there. But when you're running against Nikki Haley and Tim Scott. You now have to compete for the evangelical vote, and this is where you heard us discuss it. We all engage this conversation. That's a three-way race for the evangelical vote. Without it, none of them get ahead. And it was very clear after the first debate that Nikki Haley was going to make her case for it. She was going to make it passionately. She was going to make it with focus. She was going to go at Vivek Ramaswamy. And then did it in the second debate, which I think was not as, as effective as it was the first debate. But the numbers have shown it effective. Started moving from low single digits to high single digits into double digits. And now with Pence out of the race and Tim Scott only polling nationally at 1.6%, where do you think those people go? They go to DeSantis. I'm not so sure they go to DeSantis. By the way, I don't know whose voice that was, but it was very, very convincing. I personally believe that's what everybody sounds like who's part of the show. They sound like this. That's what you all sound like. Uh, uh, that right there. That's that's honestly just just book me in Vegas. I'm I'm ready for my close up. I don't know if they go for DeSantis. I can look at numbers as good as the next guy. This is New Hampshire, as we have discussed, that USA Today Suffolk poll. Trump 49, Haley 19, DeSantis 10. Nikki Haley is in a solid second place in New Hampshire at 14.2%. Yes, trailing Trump by 30%. Leave Trump to the side just for a moment. Did you catch the new Iowa poll? 
October 22nd to October 26th. It's the NBC News Des Moines Register poll. This poll right here, uh, I'm, I'm looking for the, uh, the, the plus minuses here and everything else. Margin of error of 4.9 percentage points, 404 likely Republican caucus goers. You trust this poll to your heart's content. Except this poll shows Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis tied at 16% each. In mid-September, Ron DeSantis was at 21. He's now at 16 and he trended down. In mid-September, Nikki Haley was at 8. She's now at 16. And she is now in a solid third place in Iowa at 11.5%, with Tim Scott in fourth at 6%. Ramaswamy falling to fifth. Over at National Review, where I have this weird love-hate relationship. I do. I do. I get their issues, yet they've got some people who I, I, I respect that through it all, they keep fighting through. The people who mostly recognize that maybe Trump wasn't the end of civilization. You asked me to show my uh, respect for David French. It's not happening. You asked me to show my respect for for Jonah Goldberg uh, regarding Trump. That's not happening. But there are guys I talk to on the regular like Noah Rothman. Noah Rothman can be infuriating and Noah Rothman can be brilliant. I feel the same way about Charles uh, C.W. Cook, about Jim Garrity, people I have on the show. I respect the mind, even though I don't always agree with them. Noah Rothman put together an interesting theory. Why Nikki Haley is gaining in Iowa. And here's how it starts, right? You know, like the summation. While DeSantis insists Trump's skeptical Republicans rally around him as the default alternative to Trump, Haley is actually asking for their votes. Now, leave aside where you might be on Nikki Haley. Leave that aside just for a a, a moment. That is a very interesting observation and one that should kind of make us take a step back and say, is that what's happening? That is a difference in making a case, right? Well, clearly Trump can't win a general election and I should be the next guy up. I'm asking for you to vote for me because if you do, I can do X, Y, and Z. Those are very different approaches. And one could say that while maybe it doesn't win Nikki Haley a nomination, it could certainly play very well in Iowa. And as the polling shows, New Hampshire. That is a... I'm not talking about you liking Nikki Haley. I, I get the arguments. Uh, they, they, they less work on me, but I, I, I've always uh, gotten them. I've always understood. But isn't that a, a very interesting analysis? And one could argue, if that was indeed the case, that the data backs it up. The data backs it up when you take a look at Iowa and when you take a look at New Hampshire and how Haley has climbed. 
They're making a different argument. One is self-ordained. One is uh, self-deprecating. I'm the clear alternative. I'm asking for your vote. I think that's really interesting. And Nikki Haley has another built-in advantage. And that's South Carolina. Where in the latest poll there, which was September 23rd to October 1st, Trump forty uh, Trump 51, Nikki Haley 17. Trump still with these massive, massive leads. It's crazy town. And when does this start becoming the thing? For me, this starts becoming the thing on the day of the Iowa caucus. If I take a look at Iowa... And Trump is ahead by 27 points. And Trump is, by the way, this is the lowest Trump has been in a while in in Iowa. You'd have to go back to the beginning of June. Really? I mean, he had some of these in August where he was like 39%. And then DeSantis was 24%. I was like, oh, okay, here comes DeSantis. Never materialized. Never materialized. If Trump wins the Iowa caucus by 27 points, okay, game over. We're done. He's going to get the nomination. Done. It would take a lot to uh to see that to see that a little differently. Now, this is not the only subject that's happening. Of course, one of the big things that's happening regarding uh the war in Israel is, of course, how this affects us at the southern border. Senator Todd Young joins us right now uh, from the great state of Indiana. Uh, You have been uh, uh, at work, sir. You have been uh, pushing and discussing what is happening on the southern border. We have seen this rise in in terrorist crossings at the southern border. Uh, yet you were able to carve out a few minutes, and I appreciate it. Uh, talk to me about what it is that you've been saying and what you have reached out to President Biden in a letter saying. Thanks for having me on, Tony. It is such a dangerous time, and uh, Hamas, of course, October 7, unleashed uh, a, a deadly, horrific, monstrous terrorist attack on, on the Israeli people. Hamas funded by Iran, trained by Iran, perhaps directed by the state of Iran, the leading state sponsor of international terrorism. And yet we still, after three years of this administration, we still have a porous, to put it charitable, a, a porous southern border, an open southern border. In fiscal year 2023 alone, so that's over roughly the last year, Tony, 169 migrants with positive terrorism watch list matches were apprehended along our southern border. That's just 169 of them who were apprehended. They, they uh, hit positive on the terrorism watch list. A lot more, we know, have have gotten through. In September, Tony, the border officials arrested 18 people on the FBI's terror watch list. 
this is so dangerous. So this is what led me to draft a letter following up on a, a, a meeting that I requested the administration come in, brief me in a classified setting two years ago. I'm chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee that oversees terrorist activities. And so I had a private briefing two years ago where national security agencies came in to brief me in a classified setting uh, about people on the terror watch list who cross that border. It was disturbing then. I asked for action. We're asking for a lot of specifics now. So I. So the specifics that you're asking about for, 10 sir. Of my colleagues signed on. Go ahead. And the specifics that you're asking for, is this to yep. see if uh, Iranians or Iranian-backed uh, groups have been crossing the border? Or is this for getting just a total idea of what it is that the public isn't seeing regarding bad actors crossing? Uh, it is. It's the latter. It's a, it's a broader re- request. I am not under the illusion that only Iran wants to do the United States of America and all we stand for harm. There are other bad actors out there. The Chinese Communist Party. Russia, Venezuela, on and on. And so uh, it's imperative that we get a sense of, first, any changes in uh, the, the threat characterization of the homeland. Surely one would think that we have a heightened threat alert and associated protocols on our southern border. I hope to God that is the case, Tony. We need to know what we need to know what proactive initiatives are underway to bolster our security protocols at our southern border, given the current circumstances. I requested that. We need to know what measures are being implemented to address the blind spot and uh, ensure we identify and neutralize potential threats. We need to know uh, what new actions are taken to preemptively detect and counteract these threats. Uh, we need to know what collaborative steps we're taking with our neighbors to enlist their support and collaboration and address these terrorist threats. And we need to know how, lastly, the administration is working to track and block financial channels that may support terrorist activities and infiltration at our northern and southern borders and other ports of entry. So we need all of this. We need all of this within the next week. Uh, seeing as there has not been uh, a proactive effort by the administration to ease the nerves, concerns, and answer the questions of the American people and their elected representatives. Well, That's let's get into one of those questions, talking to Senator Todd Young of Indiana. One of the questions is, we clearly know there's a threat. We clearly know there's a terrorist threat. We clearly know there's a humanitarian threat. We clearly understand that the border is not safe and not secure. Yet we keep getting told by the people on the other side of the aisle that the border's fine. We keep getting told that we're xenophobes if we want a secure border. Why is it that the political left, in your view, the people you've spoken with, won't work to create sound policy that creates a safer America. Well, Tony, we know that the base of the National Democratic Party, where the energy is, the people who get out the votes, oftentimes the people who are sort of the handmaidens of, of financing political campaigns, they are on the far left 
progressive dimension of the, of, of, of the party. And there is a concern that these individuals will construe any utterance of the word border, any efforts to try and enhance border security as nativist, as uh, unfair, as unwelcoming, as mean-spirited, even racist. And uh, I think it is that dynamic more than anything else which uh, serves as a barrier to strong words and, and, and bold enough action to take this security threat seriously. They don't know that their own constituents, that their own lives are at risk, that America itself is at risk. The the ideology is that strong. Have you I mean, have you ever said this to someone on the other side of the aisle? Do you understand you're talking about your own kids here? Like, does it ever get to that level of base conversation? It does. It does, Tony. Um, And, uh, you know, I'll I'll let my colleagues speak for themselves about how individually uh, they approach this issue and what barriers might exist uh, to uh, more robust border security. But it's hard to believe in this threat atmosphere uh, that we wouldn't have more federal elected officials making this a first order priority if the politics uh, weren't so resistant to it, if their own base weren't so resistant to it. So, you know, it's unfortunate. We all have to navigate our own political dynamics. We all sometimes have to tell constituents hard truths. But this is this is one of those cases where this president and Democrats in Congress are going to have to join Republicans who have made border security a priority for years now, including myself. Senator Todd Young of Indiana, I know that you're heading uh, uh, to do uh, some work heading back to, I believe, heading back to to D.C. Uh, I will let you go uh, take care of that. I appreciate you taking time to call in. We will follow up on on uh, this letter. And if you got a response, catch up next week and see uh, what it is you heard from President Biden and the administration. Senator Todd we'll Young, I appreciate you. More is coming up. I'm Tony Katz. Remind me to continue the conversation about Mike Pence getting out of the, the race because I, when when Senator Young called in, I did want to get to him, and I didn't get to this this bit of polling. Uh, News Nation with the report, 77% of people worry the Israel-Hamas war may lead to terrorism in the United States. Yes, this is correct, which is why what Senator Young is asking of Biden is extremely important. And anecdotally... Local gun shops that I know, specifically a sponsor of mine for my morning radio show, um, they're seeing more people than ever. They're starting to hear from uh, distributors that um, maybe some things aren't available right now because people are concerned. And rational people know that terrorists want what they want, and what they want is America to suffer and not exist. This all does come together. This is Tony Katz today.
COVID is now official. We don't have to ask the questions anymore. The Indianapolis Colts are a bad football team. The fact that they could be 5-3 and three right now doesn't actually take away from the fact that they're a bad football team. It's the proof of it. It's not that, oh, one got away with the Cleveland Browns because one did get away with the Cleveland Browns. But even then, you could argue maybe they're a bad football team. But no, you went my route. You decide to give them one more shot against the New Orleans Saints. They lose 38-27. to They should not have. And they did why? For the same reason the Browns were able to compete so well. They're a bad football team. And it's not just Gardner Minshew. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. What's going on, everybody? JMV joins us. He is the voice of sports in Indiana from 93.5-1075, the fan in Indianapolis. On the subject of Gardner Minshew, because we're going to talk about the full thing, and then we're going to talk about the 2-0 Indiana Pacers. Gardner Minshew was 23 for 41, 213 yards, two touchdowns, and an interception. He was sacked twice for six yards. It's not a bad outing. It's not a bad day, but Gardner Minshew doesn't know how to throw the ball away, and Gardner Minshew is desperate to make a play, and this is now killing the Colts, JMV. Where are you at? Well, as much as two, I like Shane Steichen, and I do. I think Shane Steichen is going to be really good um, offensively moving forward as a coach of this team. Uh, All too familiar territory, Tony, in terms of your head coach, outsmarting yourself and a lot of people are going to suggest well you got to throw it that much once you get down a couple of scores you know late in that game yesterday into the fourth quarter and while that is accurate it's the the possession where Minshew threw that interception I mean you were getting the ball down the field you were running the football in fact um, the Fox broadcast had mentioned hey you know they're really getting things amped up now by just running the football. You can see them getting momentum, and it was not any more out of their mouths when Minshew, for whatever reason, he runs out of the pocket and just throws one up for grabs. So, yes, is that on the quarterback? Absolutely, but I think it's also on the head coach. Much like we talked about last week, there are so many good things to to bring up offensively that the Colts did that Shane Steichen dialed up. I thought he was fantastic offensively against the Browns. It's that occasional outthinking yourself situation that he's going to have to overcome at some point. We saw it last week, late in the first half, and we saw it when they're down one. You know, obviously you could kick a field goal. At some point you're going to get three out of that. Maybe you're driving for a touchdown, and for whatever reason you dial up this play. And I don't know if you trust Minshew to throw it away and not make the mistake. I think at this point in time you don't. But it just, um, it's just stuff that I think the coach has to get over because a lot of what took place at that moment in the game was on the coach. That's my point. He doesn't throw it away. How many more times yeah. are Colts fans going to see Gardner Minshew kind of fumble it away, Gardner Minshew get strip-sacked or something close to it and just be lucky that something gets overturned? No, and you're right, too. I think about it. You, the, the luck part you're talking about was, was the pass, too, that was ruled an incompletion and not a fumble. It was very close to being a fumble, or he'd had another turnover. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think at this point, you just got to kind of recognize that that's what he is and that's what he does um, at this point. And then it's up to the coach to try as hard as he possibly can after seeing this, just like you and I do, just like the fans do, to try to, as best as possible, keep him out of those situations. And then getting flushed from the pocket and just throwing that wounded quail up in the air for a prayer that got answered by the Saints. 
is just bad business for a Colts team that has zero margin for error. And when they make it, when they turn football over, Tony, there is no doubt. When they turn it over, when they are plus one in the turnover category as in terms of turning it over, you know, not taking it away, when they're plus one, they lose football games. That's that. Talking to JMV, the voice of sports in Indiana from 93.5-1075, the fan in Indianapolis. It's not like the offense have played horrifically. 27 points on the board. They have not had a game where they've scored less than 20 points. That is the best in, in, in the NFL. And you take a look at Jonathan Taylor, 12 carries, 95 yards. Zach Moss, 11 carries, 66 yards. Yet in a, a little run from Gardner Minshew, they got 164 yards on the ground. That's that is not a bad day. You you may you may argue you want to see more, but that's good stuff. The offense does have things that are working. You got three receptions from Alec Pierce. You had Josh Downs with an absolutely terrific, terrific day. There's stuff here that you can build on, man. No, there is too. And I'll give you a great example of what we just talked about regarding the decision making of Menchu, just throwing one up. Well, a little further in the game, he threw one up, and Andrew Ogletree, the tight end, caught it in the end zone against double coverage, and it was a touchdown. It's decision-making and moments that matter so prolifically in the NFL and week to week. And this is the type of stuff that normally this season and going back to last year, too, we see the Colts on the other side. And it comes down to a play here or a play there. Or maybe if you're just looking at it from a consistency standpoint, are you getting consistent quarterback pressure, which the Colts obviously are not right now? Last week we were talking about it against P.J. Walker. Hey, why not go ahead and bring everybody? Because you're going to get beat on the back end anyway by a quarterback that's not any good, but at least you're playing against a quarterback that's not any good. You couldn't do that this week with Derek Carr because Derek Carr would beat you that way. Derek Carr and the Saints found ways to beat an undermanned and outmanned secondary of the Colts yesterday as well. It's just always Tony staking something right here. And you know what? That is the sign of just a football team that's not that good, that the personnel is not that good. They can give you moments where you feel good, as you just talked about, but more times than not, they're going to give you those feel-bad moments like we've seen, you know, basically the last eight or so times, one out of the last nine times on Lucas Oil Stadium, Tony, when they lose, that's the sign of a bad football team. I just want to see some consistency. And rarely, if ever, this team this season gives you a reason to feel like it's going that direction in terms of consistency. We'll see about the rest of the schedule, but the last three, we haven't seen it at all. And that brings us to where I think the problem lies with the defense. This was not a good outing. This was uh, the, 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 the long pass. Uh, I'm forgetting to, to who, from who, who it went to. Oh, to, uh, to Shahid. That long yeah. pass, that first touch, that touchdown, this was, this was barbaric if you will, in, in leaving that opening. Um, they didn't necessarily have an answer for, for uh, Alvin Kamara. Um, they didn't have answers, and they certainly didn't have an answer for Taysom Hill. Uh, this backup quarterback, kind of running back, whatever it is uh, that he does in this wildcat, you didn't know that he was going to run the ball every time that he was in? I don't understand what this defense was doing. Yeah, barbaric. I'm going to steal that and use it later on today defensively. No, you're right about that, too. Um, and you mentioned they could have given up something else, too. Olave had one bounce off his face, bounce off his helmet, that he was wide open for a touchdown. 
uh, this defense has problems. The defense has problems, Tony, in the secondary because it was not prepared enough by Chris Ballard in the offseason. That was a, a point of emphasis that we had talked about all offseason, especially when Stephon Gilmore had wanted out and they traded him away. And then when Isaiah Rogers, you know, gets caught up in that gambling situation and suspended for the year and then they ultimately cut him loose, you needed to go out and help fortify that secondary. And, you know, basically the Colts didn't. I mean, go back to Darius Rush, who was a late-round selection in that secondary back in the spring draft, and they cut him loose before the start of the season. Just some head-scratchers as far as preparation for that secondary. Now, granted, you expect a heck of a lot more because the guys you invested in are up front, and they are not performing, have not been at all consistently performing. But Chris Ballard set that secondary up. Whether you're just wanting to see these guys grow into a season where you don't have a great deal of expectations, whatever. Chris Ballard did not set this group up for any type of success and we're seeing that right now, especially with a myriad of injuries back there. Zaire Franklin, he stepped out of the game for for a short while. What was that injury? Because I know he, I think he did come back to yeah, the game. I'm trying to remember. Um, what yeah, was that? That's, that's, that's why this year he's had he's been out of it and came back. But he he did come back, and yeah, he's a gamer. There's no question. What what was uh, the problem? Um, I, I don't know what the problem was. I, I thought he went into the tent. I could be wrong. He may have went into the tent and came back out. But at any rate, the one thing you brought up a moment ago was, was Kamara. And how many different times did you see Kamara matched up over the middle, for example, on a pass play out of the backfield with Franklin? And Franklin has been so good this year. But, man, it's not a fair fight against most people, most linebackers of the NFL, and certainly not one in terms of the Colts right there. So that that was a struggle. What you saw, I thought, yesterday, Tony, overall, is you saw an offense with New Orleans that has some really good skill position players, and maybe they're not going to be consistently good against everybody, but they are guys that really stick it to this Colts defense, or really would. Kamara, you know, you, you're talking about Lave if he could catch. You know, a guy like Derek Carr who has moments when he is good, moments when he's not. But normally, if he doesn't feel the pressure, he's going to make sound decisions. And we saw that yesterday. They just have guys that can get at this Colts defense, unlike we saw last week. And unfortunately, the Colts still lost with that opportunity to win down the stretch. This was a bad offensive versus defensive matchup to where these two teams sit right now. Let me move it over to college football just really quickly. Talking to JMV, the voice of sports in Indiana from 93.5, 107.5, the fan in Indianapolis. Uh, you have um, uh, Rutgers, uh, not Rutgers, that was the week before. I'm looking at, at the yeah. whole schedule right now. It's a lot of losses. You have Penn State 33, uh, Indiana 24. Uh, there's... Where do, you, where do you want to start with how uh, poorly this team is performing? Well, I mean, IU is I, – I, you, I mean, you're, you're lucky. I guess you feel fortunate you're that close with Penn State. Uh, Penn State would argue that maybe they had a bit of a downer at home, whatever. You saw late in that game where IU, third and eight, I mean, they have a legitimate opportunity um, to try to stay alive, maybe do something nobody thought they were going to do, and they ran the football. And it's always something with IU. This team, simply put, Tony, is not any good. And it's not going to get any better. And it's not going to get any better next year with Tom Allen back as well. They're not going to get rid of Tom Allen because they can't afford it. So he's going to be there. And this is, by and large, what you feel that you're going to get. There were some moments at Penn State, don't get me wrong, some big play moments 
in that game Saturday against Penn State. But it is always something in terms of competing and certainly in terms of staying in a game that unfortunately we saw it late. It kind of looked like IU was playing more because they almost like they felt comfortable in that situation. I mean, third and eight, and you run it right there. You kind of give it up against that Penn State defense. And that's unfortunate, but that's IU football right now, and it doesn't look like that is going to change anytime soon, even if Tom Allen was you know, incredibly happy with that Happy Valley effort he got from his team at Penn State on Saturday. All right, so that's, that's all I needed to do there. That was, that's all that good. was it. That's good. <laughs> now we look at the Pacers, because the Pacers are 2-0. and which means, of course, they're going undefeated. That's what it means. That's science yes. right there, uh, JMV. You look at this team. There's still a lot of youth to this team. Uh, what is it that you're seeing that, that you're liking? Where is uh, Rick Carlisle taking these guys? Well, I love it, too. The depth is where you're going to start. The depth has really shown in the first two games. You saw Aaron Smith with a career-high points off the bench. He was key in that game in Cleveland on Saturday. And we also should tell everybody that the Cavaliers play without three of their top players, Donovan Mitchell, Don't care. Darius Garland, and, and Jared. No, no, no. What I was going to tell you is Jared Allen as well. Um, tell you is the Pacers did what the Pacers needed to do. That's what you have to do. If somebody's going to say this is the second of a back-to-back, we're going to rest our guys, and it's you know game number two, then you take a beating at home. That's exactly what the Pacers should do. Give them a beating at home. But it has been so far. The depth, there's no doubt about that, has been Tyrese Halliburton, who has been Tyrese Halliburton steady as usual. We saw a need, and I said this last week, Tony, I said there's going to be a point when T.J. McConnell is going to be incredibly necessary with what his, his uh, bringing to the table is concerned here, his bag, as they say right now. And we saw that on Saturday coming off the bench. He was huge in that game. Miles Turner had a double-double. Here's the thing I want you to watch out for. And all Pacer fans, watch out for this. Four of the eight quarters so far, they have given up 30-plus. I don't expect this defense to be great by any stretch of the imagination, but you got to get better than that. The offense, more times than not, will end up saving them, but the defense has to get better. But a great 2-0 start, and you get a Bulls team that, um, you know, I think uh, it was uh, Zach Levine put 51 up on the board uh, over the weekend. I think it was in a loss by the Bulls, but 51 nonetheless, and another very winnable home matchup against the Bulls. Tony coming up later on tonight for the Pacers. That is JMV 93.5-1075, the fan, the voice of sports in Indiana. You catch him there uh, in, in the, uh, the drive time home. JMV, appreciate you. More to get to. I'm Tony Katz. This is Tony Katz Today. The shooter in Maine took his own life on the run, and it has me questioning everything about the so-called mental issues this guy had. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. Now, that may very well be the case, and I'll, and I'll wait for more. But a guy who is hearing voices, served in the military, threatened to shoot up the military base he was, he was at, was committed, then released. Um has the wherewithal to leave a note and then goes on the run and takes his own life. Now you can argue, Tony, a guy who is hearing voices isn't, you know, going to be engaged in some level of rationality. That's a solid point. I don't know what it is that hits me. So there, there's something off here. 
I, the guy who's hearing voice, I don't know, maybe a guy hearing voices leaves notes. Something about that just hit me at the first, at, at, at just as odd, and all weekend it hit me as odd. And now as I'm saying it to you, I'm like, what do, what do I really know about what's in this guy's head? It hits you as odd, Tony, because you would think, well, a guy hearing voices is not in his right mind. How would he know to even leave a, a, a note? But what am I, what is, uh, maybe I'm arguing that our conversations about mental illness are used as a catch-all and we don't engage seriously enough what has to be done in some of these situations. Maybe we have to ask ourselves what's happening in society to create the mental illness. What is in the society that needs to be extricated or what's been removed from society that needs to be reintroduced. Tony, what makes you think it's societal? I don't know, but I think it is. What is happening to us? What are we doing to ourselves? Where we see these things with such regularity. Because we see these things with such regularity. Something. Something is amiss in society. I, I believe that our issue is cultural. Something is missing from society that needs to be reintroduced or something is in society that needs to be extricated. That's the serious conversation. That's the one we should be having. I'm Tony Katz and this is Tony Katz Today. Today.